Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2, we will be there in just a moment. Uh, because Psalm 2 is, starts out with a question. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And this seems like a particularly apt question to ask at this point in the United States history. Everywhere we turn, we see this nation and many other nations raging. We see the people threatening the justices of the Supreme Court over the Roe versus Wade decision. We see politicians and agitators screaming and shaking their fists in the air at the idea that they don't have a constitutional right to kill babies in the womb. People are lashing out and one of the targets has been crisis pregnancy centers. One awful slogan I have seen written on the walls of a pregnancy center is, if abortions aren't safe, then neither are you. And there's no veil on that threat. And at the same time, we have had to deal with what is called Pride Month, where sexual perversion is celebrated where people are desensitized to this sin that brings about quick death. One bizarre concept that I see shown about this is that on one hand, we're supposed to celebrate homosexuality as normal. But on the other hand, if you see their parades and, and other activities, you see perversion on a scale that is just shocking. I guess I'm getting a little older these days, but I remember as a kid that you wouldn't see anything like what we're seeing now. There was some sense of, you know, commonality, common sense, a decorum that people may have. But as, as we have seen lately, it's not the same now as it used to be. They, people will put their sins on display in front of us and say, what are you going to do about it? Why do the nations rage? And who are they raging at? It is as if all common sense and decency have left. And so I want us to, as we're facing and we see these things that are going on in our country, in our cities, one of the things, though, is how do we deal with this? Because sometimes it seems like the whole world is arrayed against us but how do we then deal with these things? I, w I don't want us as believers to cower or even worse to compromise and to give in to the, to the sin of the world. But what do we have? How can we deal with this, this type of aggressive, in-your-face sin? And, and where does it come from? Why, why are people acting like that? So this evening, we're going to ask and answer three questions to help us to understand this age. So please, again, if you haven't gotten there yet, turn to Psalm 2, and we will be reading the first six verses this evening. Now, before I actually get there, just a short something on the Psalms. Each of the 150 Psalms in the Bible, each are standalone songs. They are meant to be sung 
And so the language that's in these psalms is, is a poetic language. It contains imagery that is supposed to evoke emotion in us. So these psalms are focused on our minds, but they're also focused on our emotions. And I think that in this emotional time that we are dealing with, I think it's good for us to address these psalms. So as an example of what I'm talking about, if we just, if you flip back a little bit to to Psalm 1, the imagery in Psalm 1 has to do with the righteous and the wicked. I'm going to read Psalm 1, starting in verse 3. It says, he, and that he is the righteous. The righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So when we we see that imagery, we see the imagery of a tree planted by streams of water. And when we see that image, that should say to us that we have a strength is a characteristic of the righteous. That strength to be uh, firm and steady long life and certainty. These are things that are trees planted by streams of water. But the picture of the wicked is not like that. It says they are like chaff, dead, dry, and fleeting. So this imagery that we see here carries over into Psalm 2. And so let's go ahead and read the first three verses of Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the imagery from Psalm 2, it gives us that of a battle, that there is a war going on, that this is not just people with different opinions and live and let live, concepts here, but we have instead, we have the nations raging, and they desire to be rid of God. And at the same time, as we continue on, we'll we'll see God's response. So the first point that I want to start off with this evening is, why do the nations rage? So there are different aspects of that question that I want to explore. The first may be obvious, and you were probably uh, voicing this sentiment while I was giving the introduction. Why do the nations rage? They rage because they want to do away with God. The word rage here means to be in turmoil or commotion. This world is not at peace. This world is in turmoil. And the people, they are agitated. They do not want to abide God in his word any longer, or they haven't for many, many years. But they are worked up against God. They are in turmoil over Jesus Christ. They hate him, and they desire more than all else to blot out any remembrance of God. Verse 3 tells us that the plans of the nations, it says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the nations of the world want to do away with anything that God has commanded because God's commands are binding on everyone in this world, yet they do not want to submit to God. They do not have a fear of God in their eyes. They want to 
do away with anything that will limit their autonomy. They want to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and if you challenge them on it, they want to harm you and, do, and have you gotten rid of as well. You can just feel the urgency. They must be rid of God. That sentence, let us burst their bonds apart, they say. The nations want to be their own gods and to be, in effect, like Lucifer. Now, if in Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 13, it says this, speaking of Lucifer, it says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, again, it's, it's this world in its raging is not something neutral. It's not something just individuals are coming up with, but it is, a, it is the culture, it is the society that wants to raise itself above anything to do with God. They want to cancel God and they want to do away with anything that he has to say to them. The nations, this world system, wants to usurp God's authority and position just as Lucifer wanted the same things. But why such intensity of feeling? Why are they so against Christianity and against Christians? Because if you think about it, Christians have brought so much good into society it is Christian principles that give value to each human being. It is Christians that are the most charitable, and they open hospitals and universities. It is Christianity that has done these things, that has brought equality to the masses. It is the truth of God being lived out by Christians that has brought these things. But this passage here in Psalm 2, we read that in Isaiah, it gives us a hint of what is really going on. What we read in Isaiah really gives us a hint of what is going on. Why do the nations rage? Because the devil himself is the one who is motivating their rage. It is not just human beings on, on their own, but it is Satan himself. It is he that possessed the serpent and brought about the fall of mankind. It was he that brought suffering and calamity to Job. It was he that animated Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. It was he that whispered to Pharaoh to have the male children of Israel killed at birth. In Ephesians 2, Paul gives us these words. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Following the prince of the power of the air. And later in Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, we read the following. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This passage puts the pieces together for us. We are to put on the armor of God 
in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, I think one of the things we can run into a problem with is we look at those people or these people doing this thing and we can, we can focus on individuals who are lost, who need a savior, but instead we need to realize that they are motivated and agitated by the power of the devil himself, the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who controls the course of this world, the ages that are coming. He's the one who, who gives sentiment. It's amazing how much the media is able to affect our mood all the time. You can, if you turn on the news, I don't care if it's Fox News or CNN, they can get you agitated very quick. You start to imagine that everything is either falling apart, which is what I usually see when I'm looking at that, or going exactly the way you want. But the news cycle is meant to agitate us. But what is happening here is that Satan whispering in the ears of his slaves, those who are following the prince of the power of the air, which was, as Paul said here in Ephesians 2, which was everyone apart from God. That there are no such thing as neutral people. It's not, you know, people will talk sometimes about, oh, there's, there are, these people are just naturally good people. But as we're going to see a little bit later, there's no such thing as naturally good people. That in fact, we are all sinners, enemies of God, until we come to saving faith. So uh, the pieces are put together for it. It is Satan that animates the hatred against Christians, against Christian values. And really, when you get down to it, it is Satan that plots and schemes against the image of God in mankind. Remember, Satan hates God. And he hates anything that God has done. And so he hates human beings. He hates us because every human being holds the image of God. And he wants to lead us to destruction. He wants to lead us to, to pain and anguish and death. And everything that mankind puts together apart from God leads to death. So in addition to looking at why do the nations rage, I also want to look tonight at the second part, which is how do the nations rage? What are some examples of how the devil and his schemes are causing the nations to rage? Here I want to focus on these manifestations of the spiritual battle that we are caught up in. Now we have already mentioned abortion and homosexuality, which are two evils that are pervasive in our society. They attempt to deny God his authority. Abortion says that we decide life or death, not God. It goes against the image of God in each human being, and homosexuality denies God the right to define human sexuality. It denies God the right to define marriage. Both areas strike at God's right to be the lawgiver and the judge for his creation. In Romans 9, Paul uses an illustration of the potter and the clay, and he asks the question in verse 21 of Romans 9. It says this, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump 
one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, when Paul is asking that question, the answer is obvious. Obviously, the potter has the right over the clay. But that only holds if someone is the potter. What this world has desires to do under the power of Satan is to say that God is not the potter, that the clay is able to do whatever they want to do, that they are not beholden to anyone, and whatever they do is right because they are autonomous beings, gods on their own. The culture answers this, to this question would be, no, the potter has no right over the clay. The clay gets to decide. So this evening I want to address additional areas in addition to homosexuality and abortion. I want to address a couple of other issues where I see the manifestations of this war that Satan is wielding against God and and his people. So here, when I ask the question, how do the nations rage? The nations rage against God through critical theory. Now, I spend a lot of time looking and examining things going on with critical race theory. In fact, uh, Jack and I, we taught a 12-week class on our community fellowship Sunday school, that, and those, most of those lessons are available online. And so the critical theory is a very deep and wide topic. So obviously we're not going to be able to talk about every aspect of it tonight, but I do want to talk about it in the venue of how it is a manifestation of the schemes of the devil to overthrow the authority of God. So in order to understand this section, I need to define some terms because there are a lot of terms out there, and one of the things that academics will do is, as soon as you try to define a term, they will say, oh no, that's not what it means. You know, you didn't capture everything, you were too general in your description, and so it's, it doesn't hold. But I understand that what I'm saying here is not exhaustive, and you can find academics who are going to say, oh, you weren't precise enough in this language, but I want to be able to, to tell us all here tonight because I don't want any of us to be unaware of, the, of what critical theory is and its danger to the church and to our own walk with the Lord. So critical theory is a philosophical analysis and critique of human systems in order to understand them. Critical theory started with Karl Marx's economic theory that the rich oppressed the poor and expanded it to all areas of human society. And we will discuss it further in a moment. The, The goal of critical theory is to define utopia as a place and time when all oppressors are gone, where every person contributes and receives an equal share of the outcome. Now, I say critical theory, there are different areas of focus within critical theory. One of them is critical race theory. And if you you follow a lot of uh, 
of teachers in the conservative Christian realm, you're going to hear a lot about critical race theory. So critical race theory is simply critical theory that is focusing on race and how race is dealt with by oppressors and oppression and the final goals, etc. There's also critical gender theory that is also causing lots of problems in the, in the Christian church. We're going to address that a little bit. And also critical queer theory as well. And this is one of those things that we're going to look at because a lot of times people will focus on critical race theory, but the whole thing of critical theory is it's one big train, and there's no difference between when they push the critical race theory than when they push gender theory and queer theory into the church as well. In fact, it's one of those, if you let the, the nose of the camel go in on critical race theory, then you don't have much defense against the gender theory and queer theory that, that follow along. Now, other uh, concepts in critical theory have to do with social justice. Now, social justice is something that sounds, we hear the word justice, and that sounds biblical to us. But here's the thing. Social justice, by definition, is the forced redistribution of assets in order to accomplish the goal of critical theory. So what is the, what is the goal of critical theory? If we go back to, it, to what I just described there, the goal of critical theory is that every person contributes to the, the goal of the state and receives an equal amount of the outcome. So in order to get social justice, you have to force the equal distribution of everything that is produced. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about how this is manifested in the church in a little bit, but there are a couple other terms. One is woke. We'll hear people say about being woke or the woke church. Well, being woke means that you realize that critical theory is correct. So that's my, my quick definition now. Those people who are woke are the people who realize that they're either they are oppressors or they are oppressed. And that social justice is the key goal and all the things that go along with that. Also, I just, I've been mentioning them a little bit, is there's oppressor, which is those who benefit from the status quo, and oppressed, which is those who are cheated and mistreated as part of the status quo. And finally, the last term I'm going to bring up this evening is intersectionality, which is a scale along which your status as oppressed is measured. For instance, someone who is a black man is oppressed because he is black, yet he is an oppressor because he is a man. So that's one level of oppression. But a black woman is going to be both oppressed because she's a woman and oppressed because she's black. So as, we, as these categories are examined, someone with more categories of being oppressed 
are going to be more clear about what to do about oppression. Again, that's what they say, not what the Bible says. All right, so other categories that are along, besides being male and female or white or black or other minority, the other categories that are important here are Christianity. Christianity is seen as a tool of the oppression. And so if you're a Christian, you're an oppressor. If you're not, then you are the one who is oppressed. And also, as I mentioned before, under, under critical queer theory, there, if you are heterosexual, then you are an oppressor because you have oppressed what they call sexual minorities. So that's a lot of terms, but I want to get those out there. So as we, as we discuss these a little bit more, that, we are, uh, that you understand what I'm using to explain these different terms. Now, what has happened with, these, with critical race theory and the woke church and all that is, is a lot of churches have been disrupted. In fact, we have received a lot of people, a lot of people who attend Lakeside now have come to us as a result of their churches integrating and bringing in different concepts of critical race theory. When believers want to hear the gospel, they want to hear the gospel preached, and they want to hear the message of Scripture, the commands of God, that's what they want to hear, not this critical theory, which is just a tool of Satan in his battle against God. Now, I want to flesh out a little bit more the definition of critical theory here. I want to address some of the assumptions of this worldview and to walk you through how you should understand what advocates of critical theory are saying. All right, so again, the basic underlying assumption of critical theory is that if mankind is free of oppression, he will naturally live in harmony with everyone around him that each person will work to produce what they need and the production will be naturally distributed to everyone. Right Now, one question is, why hasn't this type of government been implemented before now? So the, the way critical theory would answer that question is because elements of oppression were introduced into society that led to the disparity of outcomes. That's why social justice is the goal because it is the disparities of outcome, the lack of social justice that gives the oppressors the power that they have. So why haven't governments implemented this critical theory? Well, we've had various governments over the years, communist and socialist governments, but none of them ever works out. None of them have ever reached this utopia that that they shoot for, that they say can be achieved if we just reach certain conditions. But I would say that the reason that these things haven't worked out is because they have the wrong assumptions. Their assumption here is that mankind at his root is good. That mankind, if not oppressed, will do what is right if they are freed. This, this sentiment is put to words in the book, uh, The Diary of Anne Frank. 
In that book about her life and the evil of Nazis and the death camp, she wrote, It's a wonder that I haven't abandoned all my ideals. They seem so absurd and impractical. Yet I cling to them because I still believe, in spite of everything, that people are truly good at heart. Now, I'm not saying that Anne Frank was a critical theorist, but just that to the view that she espouses here is, in fact, in keeping with critical theory. Now, there is a, a lot of emotion tied to a, this young girl who, is, who endured such grotesque evil, and people want to see this as a, a wonderful thing that she believes that. But the question is, is it true? The Bible gives us a different picture of mankind. In Jeremiah 17.9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the scripture goes on to say in various places that we are slaves to sin, dead in our sins, that all have sinned, and that we, and we have already covered that in Ephesians 2, where it says that we are under the sway of Satan, the father of all evil things. So here's my question. Who has the right view of man? Is the critical theory utopia possible, which requires that man is good at heart, or is the Bible right in saying that all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God? Well, we would say, of course, that the, the Bible is correct. And this is what leads to governments not being able to bring about this utopia that they are looking for. People cannot get there on their own. When critical theorists then say that the church must strive for social justice, what they are saying is that the goal of the church must be to bring about this critical theory utopia. Social justice assumes the equal distribution of outcome is, by definition, the goal that must be reached. But the Bible doesn't speak of an equity of outcome as being anything that God has promised. God gives some more and some less. And everything that he has decreed comes to pass. So think about in terms of Esau and Jacob. Did they have an equity of outcome? If we look in, our, in Romans 9, starting in verse 10, we will read this. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. If we read the Bible, we, we see that God over and over again chooses his people. He rejects others. The Bible does not give anyone the idea that there will be an equity of outcome across the board. So, has God violated the gospel? Has God sinned by preferring Jacob over Esau? Well, if we just follow that same uh, chapter in Romans 9 into verse 14 and 15, it says, Paul asks this very question. He says, what shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The notion of equity of outcome is contrary to the God's written word. Yet those who advocate for the church to follow these goals, the woke church, to put equity of outcome as central to the gospel, would require us to reject this biblical teaching. Now, to continue this, there's another thing that I want to talk about when it comes to critical theory. And for the sake of time, seeing the time is running away from me here, I'm going to skip part of what I've got here. And I'm going to focus on on this. When we're talking about how the nations rage, one of the things that, in addition to critical theory, that is a manifestation of this rebellion, of the nations rebelling against God, it comes down to creation and the created order. And so... For years, we have seen that society, academics, business, everywhere you look, they assume that evolution is true. Now, the thing is, is that God clearly spells out in, in Genesis that he is the creator of all things. And in addition to Genesis, it also tells us if we read the book of John in the very first three verses of John, John 1, 1 through 3, it tells us this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. So we see that God being the creator, that Jesus being the creator is primary to John as he reveals who Jesus is. And then if we went to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3a, we see long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just the fact that it is the first verses of the first chapter of these two books lets us know the centrality of the God having the title of creator. But when this world denies that, when this world holds on to evolution, what it's trying to do is it's trying to rob God of the ability to be the creator, the lawgiver, and the judge. Once again, we see that they strive that this manifestation of this rebellion against God is to deny God who he is and the power that he has revealed in his word. And the thing is, what's the importance of it? To us, it is so important and it's becoming more important all the time because as our country becomes more and more post-Christian, more and more people are growing up and not knowing who 
God is, not knowing who Jesus Christ is. So if you say to somebody that they need to repent and place their faith in Jesus, but they have no idea who Jesus is, how are they going to place their faith in him? You know, again, years ago in this country, we took it for granted that people would know what the Bible generally said and would know who Jesus is, but now we can't do that. And in fact, Paul, when he went to Athens and he went to Mars Hill to proclaim to the pagan philosophers on Mars Hill, how did he present God? Well, in Acts 17, starting in verse 23, he says this, For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So we see that Paul, when he goes before these pagan philosophers, he establishes that it is God who is the creator. And if we continued in that passage, we would see that he then, as the creator, God is the one who is then able to regulate the expansion of man, and where man goes, what nations do, and everything else. So we as Christians must fight for the truth that God is, in fact, our creator. Now, in my third point this evening, what I want to do is I want to ask the question, what is God's response to this rebellion? So, you know, again, from a human perspective, this rebellion of evolution and abortion and homosexuality and critical theory, these things are thrown at us time and time again, and so many are weighed down with this. But how does God respond to this rebellion? Does he hunker down? Does he have no answers for us? Well, that's why we go back to Psalm 2, and starting in verse 4, we see this. In response to the nations saying that they want to burst the bonds of God apart and cast away their cords from us. In verse 4 he says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So how does God respond? says that he laughs. Now, this isn't a laugh of humor, but but it's a derisive laugh. He's scoffing at the nations. He's saying, you think that you are going to stop me from accomplishing what it is that I will accomplish? I will show you what I will do. I will set my king upon Zion. You see, this passage shows us that, in fact, God is sovereign over all things and that the schemes of the devil, though they seem hard for us to deal with, in fact, are no problem for God. This is all part of God's decree, of what God has planned, and the most of the nations can gather together and throw against God It's not even enough to to break a sweat for God. He, in fact, laughs 
and he will establish his king and his kingdom. Now, one last verse that I want to cover here before I summarize is, if we turn to Acts chapter 4, and this is a passage that's talking about one of the greatest rebellions of mankind ever, which is when they plotted to put the God-man Jesus to death. In verse 24 of Acts 4, it says this, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who has made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here again, we see that what it's saying is that Pilate and the Romans and the Jews, when they gathered together, they thought that they were rebelling against God. They thought that they were going to thwart the plans of God. But Luke here tells us that in fact, what they did is God brought them together to accomplish exactly what God had decreed to do. So to sort of sum all this up, I want to let you guys know that we can be of good cheer even in the midst of all this raging by the nations. That we don't have to be afraid of the nations or on the other side, we don't have to expend anger and malice towards those who are espousing all these things. We should love those and proclaim the truth of God, stand firm on the truth of God, but realize that everyone who is apart from God, is a slave to sin and under the sway of Satan. And unless they are regenerated and they repent of their sins and come to saving faith, they will continue down that path. So our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the schemes of the devil. So remember then, we are not cosmic accidents with no purpose. And A person cannot change from a man to a woman and back again, or even be somewhere in between. That the little baby you see moving in the ultrasound is in fact a baby, regardless of what the country says. And if you think that you can rid ourselves of the idea of God and create a utopia apart from God, it will lead to failure over and over again. Our nation says that uh, Christianity is a mental illness. These days, more and more, there is anger and despising of Christianity. But our call is to be faithful to God, to be ambassadors who proclaim the truth of God, and to do that, again, with gentleness, but with courage and with strength, that we are on the side of the sovereign God who will, in fact, bring about everything that he has decreed to do. And as his children, he will include us in the bringing about everything into conformity to Jesus Christ. So, 
in as we end this evening, I just want us to be encouraged to love one another, to go out and proclaim the gospel to people. Even when you see on Facebook people saying all kinds of outrageous things, you don't need to respond to them back with outrageous things, but pray for them and proclaim to them the truth of the gospel, because that's what they need to hear. That's the only solution for the problems that are ailing us. And if you are here tonight and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, going back to Psalm 2 one last time, it tells us, if we start in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So tonight, if you would like to know more or if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, please let us know. Come up and and we can give you more information on what to do after that. Please let's pray. Dear Lord, we we thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that you have made it clear in, in your scripture that we are not fighting a losing battle, but instead that everything you have decreed will be accomplished and that our enemies are not these people who are spouting these outrageous lies, but instead it is the schemes of the devil, the principalities, the spiritual powers. And Lord, we know that you are more than capable and you have already defeated all your foes. And Lord, I pray that our church here at Lakeside, I know with our leadership that we pray for your mercy that we would never give in to the lies of critical race theory and that we would continue to focus on your truth and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, to those who are black and white and Hispanic and Asian, males and females, that we proclaim your truth to everyone because we know you will draw people from all nations and tribes and tongues to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.